0: We have uh, what most people think of as school is, a, is an institution that establishes a curriculum for children and either through coercion or coaxing, but it always ends up being coercion, uh, gets the children through that curriculum. <laughs> uh, where children pass, if they get through that curriculum and can prove that they have in some way incorporated some of it and can feed it back. Um, And uh, that that's what most people think of as school that I'm completely against. I think it's harmful. I think it results in shallow learning. I think it is unnecessary and it's basically a violation of human rights. You're forcing a child to do something against his or her will. And I don't think that's I don't think that's moral and I don't think it is necessary. School is clearly, if you ask the kids, if you look at the real data, school is clearly the biggest cause of mental disorder in the United States. And probably in the UK also. Yet, what do you read in the popular press? Oh, it's all about computer games, or it's about uh, social media. Or I've looked at the data there, and the data don't support that argument, they simply don't support The data are glaring about the harmful effects of school, but we don't dare say it.
1: Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello friends and welcome to episode 42 of the Rethinking Education podcast. The meaning of life resides herein. Before we begin, a quick obligatory word about the Rethinking Education Conference. The Early Bird deal, which gives you a 20% discount, expires on July the 17th, which is two weeks today. And then we're offering a further 20% discount for friends of the podcast if you enter the promo code REPOD20. R-E-P-O-D 20. You have to look for the small blue font at the top of the ticket page. So if you buy your tickets before July the 17th, you will receive a 40% discount in total. That's an 18 pound discount on the full ticket price of 50 of your earth English pounds. Tickets for the online conference are donation-based and that's because we want to make the videos publicly available afterwards, and we don't want people to feel aggrieved saying, hang on a minute, I paid for my ticket, why are they free? We've been really upfront about that now. To maximize reach, we're making them publicly available afterwards. But if you would like to contribute to the running of this conference, and by the way, all proceeds will be donated to charity, then please feel free to make a donation of your choosing. Okay, on with the show. Peter Gray. My goodness, what an episode we have in store for you. Peter Gray is a research professor at Boston College and the author of Free to Learn and Psychology, a college textbook now in its eighth edition. Free to Learn is an absolutely fascinating book and one of the very few books that I've ever read or I should say listened to twice. I'll just share a few incredible quotes that people have written about this book. David Sloan Wilson, distinguished professor of biology and anthropology at Binghampton University, wrote, this is an incredible quote, The modern educational system is like a wish made in a folktale gone horribly wrong. Peter Gray's Free to Learn leads us out of the maze of unforeseen consequences to a more natural way of letting children educate themselves. Gray's message might seem too good to be true, but it rests upon a strong scientific foundation. Free to learn can have an immediate impact on the children in your life. Close quote. Roberta Golinkoff, the author of the brilliantly titled Einstein Never Used Flashcards, wrote, A compelling and most enjoyable read. Gray illustrates how removing play from childhood, in combination with increasing the pressures of modern day schooling, paradoxically reduces the very skills we want our children to learn. The decline of play is serious business. And Stephen Pinker, who probably needs no introduction, the Harvard College professor of psychology and the author of How the Mind Works, among much else, wrote, Peter Gray is one of the world's experts in the evolution of childhood play and applies his encyclopedic knowledge of psychology and his humane voice to the pressing issue of educational reform. Though I'm not sure I agree with all of his recommendations, he forces us all to rethink our convictions on how schools should be designed to accommodate the ways that children learn. Close quote. As you may have detected by now, if you haven't come across his work before, Peter is a vocal opponent of coercive mainstream schooling and an avowed advocate of self directed learning. His current research and writing focus primarily on children's natural ways of learning and the lifelong value of play. He's a founding member of two non-profit organizations, the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, which does what it says on the tin, and Let Grow, an organization that promotes unstructured, mixed-age free play, among other things. This is a fascinating, quite challenging at times conversation in which we stress test some of Peter's ideas, as well as hearing his thoughts on the harmful effects of schooling that people often don't like to talk about. I hope you enjoy the show. Peter Gray, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast.
0: I'm very happy to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm even more happy that you're that you're here. I've been wanting to speak with you for a really long time. So, it's been quite a while now since your famous book Free to Learn was published. It's almost 10 years, isn't it? Um is it I think it was twenty thirteen? I thought it was more recently than that for some reason, but um, I looked it up um and your book is absolutely fascinating and is one of the very, very few books that i've ever read twice, um partly because it challenged me to think so hard about things that I thought that I knew for sure um and I think that most people who listen to this podcast will be familiar with your work um but for anybody who hasn't come across you previously. How would you describe yourself and the work that you do as it relates to education and schooling in particular? Well,
0: uh, officially, I'm a research uh, professor of uh, psychology and neuroscience at Boston College Uh, for many, many years. uh, uh, Earlier in my career, I was uh, mucking around in the brains of rats and mice and studying uh, the way hormones bind in their brains. but um but beginning actually now uh about thirty five years ago or so uh I changed fields uh gradually uh to developmental psychology uh where i am have been studying uh children's play and how children educate themselves uh in various ways uh that move came about um and my own son was rebelling in school and so uh, ended up at a very alternative, very radically different school. I began to do research about that school and uh, gradually became fascinated by how children learn when they have the freedom to do so. And that, in turn, led me to questions about play and so on. So ever, ever since uh, that time, which was ar- around the mid-1980s, um, I've been... Focusing on play and children's learning, I might also say, by way of introducing myself, that I'm being uh, trained in biology and um, and uh, always thinking about um, human behavior from an evolutionary, Darwinian evolutionary perspective. Uh, my approach in thinking about education and play is that of an evolutionist. Why, why do children have um, such a strong desire to play. Why do children? Why are they so incredibly curious? <laughs> you know, why are they so incredibly sociable? Um, we can't stop them from learning. Um, and so, I've uh, developed what I think of as a as a uh, evolutionary theory of education, um, and that's what I've been writing about and conducting further research on for many years now.
1: Right, thank you. And absolutely, and, and that evolutionary perspective is something that's often missing. I think that we're very sort of obsessed with the current moment in education. And I really, really enjoyed that. There's, there's the chapter in your book that comes quite early on about hunter-gatherers, and it goes into quite some depth. And at first I was like, this is, this is not usual. You don't normally hear somebody, you know, talking about hunter-gatherer tribes. Just very briefly, if it's possible to, to, to have this conversation briefly, what have hunter-gatherers got to do with it? Why why is this such an important part of your thinking?
0: Well, so if you're going to develop an evolutionary theory of education or an evolutionary theory of anything having to do with human behavior, hunter-gatherers are interesting because um, for the great bulk of our human evolution, we were all hunter-gatherers. Uh, Agriculture came about a mere 10 or eleven thousand years ago in some parts of the world um, before that uh, for pretty much 99 percent of human evolution depending on when you say we were first human different people say different things there but f- for the huge amount of time that it took for us to evolve from from being a more primitive ape to uh, to the human beings that we are today we were um, we were hunter-gatherers, and certainly Homo sapiens were hunter-gatherers uh, for for uh, at least fifty to hundred thousand years uh, before agriculture. So, um, so if you're interested in, well, why why do children do what they do? Uh, why do children resist uh, the kind of education that we impose upon them? It becomes interesting to look at hunter-gatherers because those instincts, those natural tendencies, those desires and the things that we dislike, (laughs) the brain that does this would have evolved under conditions of of hunter-gatherer times. And so it becomes interesting to know what those conditions might be. Now, we can't go back in time and the archaeological record doesn't really preserve much that's relevant, if anything that's relevant, but what we can do and what has been done is to study those groups of people who managed to maintain a hunter-gatherer way of life into relatively modern times. I don't think there are any pristine hunter-gatherer groups today. They've all been influenced in one way or another by um, by modern cultures. Um, but um, as late as the mid to even late 20th century, if certainly into about about 1980, it was still possible for researchers, uh, anthropologists, um, cultural psychologists to to trek out into isolated parts of the world uh, in Africa, South America, parts of Asia, parts of Australia, and so on, and make contact with people who were still living a pretty pristine hunter-gatherer life. And um, and so I got interested in that and um, conducted a First of all, I, I read everything that I could that had been written, but it turns out anthropologists don't write much about children. They really should write more about children. I asked one anthropologist why that was true, and 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 she said, uh, well, you know, children are pretty much the same all over the world. <laughs> They're children, they look the same, you know? And I would see that, and so sometimes in a hunter-gatherer, in an anthropologist journal, they would say, and so the children were out playing, and you know, that was all they said about the children. It was like, and I've seen films. They just look like children playing anywhere. So at any rate, they hadn't written much about them. So I, I decided, well, there are some interesting questions here. And so we did this study, a, a graduate student at that time of mine and I, in which we surveyed um, seven different, anthrop- no, ten different anthropologists who had um, conducted um, studies in seven different hunter-gatherer cultures uh, in quite different places in the world, and and we asked them about uh, children's lives in the cultures that they observed. Even if that hadn't been the focus of their work, we figured they couldn't help but have noticed, and we asked them what children did, what's the relationship between children and adults in the culture that they observed. Now, I should, as background, say that um, these cultures are all what are called band hunter-gatherer cultures. Those are the those are the hunter-gatherer cultures that survived over time. There may have been other hunter-gatherer cultures that were different, um, living on seacoasts and so on, living uh, which would have had larger communities and maybe were more tribal rather than band-like. What I'm talking about is band hunter-gatherer cultures and Many, if not most, uh, anthropologists and archaeologists believe that band hunter-gatherer cultures dominated our human existence, that 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 was more prevalent, that was the most prevalent way of living in the past. Can't say that for sure, but that's what most many believe. So at any rate, another term for these band hunter-gatherer cultures is egalitarian cultures. They are far and away the most egalitarian societies that have ever been found. So they live in, in small bands of um, 20 to 50 people each. Uh, they are self-governing, the bands are. They're not controlled by some hierarchy over the bands. Uh, the, within the band, um, all the decisions are made by consensus. There's no hierarchical structure of authority uh, most of the anthropologists tell me that women have as much voice as men. Some say men have more voice just because they talk more. Apparently, that's a commonality all over the world. In in that kind of setting, at least they talk more when right. there's some decision to be made. Uh, but uh, at least on official grounds, women have as much influence. And, and there's at least one band where that I'm aware of. This is a bit of a digression, but it's interesting, uh, where... Where the government insisted that they choose a leader, so they chose who they felt was the most, the smartest, most uh, helpful, most influential person in the band, who happened to be a woman. And so the uh, so the it's a pretty pretty sex equal society, pretty um, and definitely an egalitarian society. They they survive by sharing, so they have to. Um, they have to get along with one another, they have to like one another, they have to be willing to share everything. Basically they survive, especially by sharing meat, but other food and other things as well. So um, This is part of their egalitarianism, they, if you were to lord it over somebody in some way, uh, that kind of creates, the, creates a distinction in which people will begin to feel, some people who are loading it over, feel they deserve more than others. And if you had that, that would completely destroy um, the ability for hunter-gatherers to survive because it, the survival really depends upon sharing. Uh, so, So that's the context. Now, within this context uh, anthropologists never tell one another what to do because that would be acting like a big shot that would be acting like i know more than you do they might in some subtle way help another person see another way to do it maybe if somebody's not using an axe correctly they might go and use an axe within eyesight of that person so the person could learn how to use an axe. but they would never go over and say hey You're using the axe wrong, or let me show you how to use the axe correctly. Now, what's interesting is this taboo against telling other people what to do. And it really, some people really, some of the anthropologists say this is really in the nature of a taboo. You know, you go around telling other people what to do, and you do that persistently. You might get thrown out of the band. Uh, This is regarded as dangerous, (laughs) Uh, Because it's dangerous for somebody to believe that they're better in some sense than other people. And so you have to kind of show humility all the time. But for our discussion, the interesting point is that this applies to children as well. They do not tell children what to do. Now, the first time I heard that, I didn't even believe it. I thought this is just somebody who's exaggerating. But when I heard it basically from seven, di- from 10 different anthropologists <laughs> all saying the same thing, and in the writing, uh, to the degree that there was writing, all making that same claim, I had to begin to believe it. That uh, basically the child's free will is valued and children are not told what to do. Uh, they're not stopped from doing what they wanna do unless of course they're doing something truly dangerous. They're allowed to do what they want to do, and the belief is that what that this is the way in which they will best grow up. It's not only wrong to tell them because this 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 uh, norm of egal of equality would be violated if you tried to tell children what to do, but also because they believe that children grow up best if they do what they want to do. That in some sense children know better than anybody else what it is that they need. Each each child may need different things and, and you have to allow them to um, direct their behavior towards those needs. So that being understood, wh- one thing I learned is that in all of these bands, children have very, very little, very little if any work is expected of them. Some of them do some work, but it's totally voluntarily and they wouldn't call it work. They just would say, you know, they want to take part in adult Activities And to the degree that they're allowed to uh, without or that they can do it without interfering, uh, they're welcomed into those adult activities, but they're not required to. And um, so th- they're basically spending all their time, day uh, dawn to dusk, uh, free to do what they want. Sometimes I say they play all day long, but that's not actually true. They spend time lying around in the hammock. <laughs> they spend time talking to one another. They spend time doing all the kinds of things people do when they're free. They're not actually actively playing all the time, but they have the opportunity to play all the time. And they're playing in age mixed groups. So the so the, the the people in a hunter-gatherer band that are considered to be children are anybody from the age of four roughly four on through the mid to late teenage years. So these are pretty much what we call the school years. And during the school years, children are playing in age mixed groups, most often away from adults. Children everywhere prefer to play away from adults, but sometimes around in camp near the adults. um, And they always have access to the adults. They can see what the adults are doing. And the other thing I learned from this study is that when I, when we asked the anthropologists, well, what are the, some of the things they played at, we found that you could pretty well predict what they would play at by knowing what were the major um, skills that were important to that culture. Uh, there are certain things that children everywhere play at. They play at physically active games and tag and rough house and climbing trees and so on and so forth um, developing physical skills and courage and all of this that children everywhere play when they can. They, uh, they play at building things and so on, but what they build uh, often has to do with the culture. So a culture that, um, that uh, uses dugout canoes, the children might build little dugout, play dugout canoes. A culture that hunts with bows and arrows, they might play at building bows and arrows. A culture where the men hunt uh, by tracking big game and using bows and arrows. Uh, the boys play uh, forever at tracking, tracking whatever they can track. They track one another. They, they, there's no privacy in a hunter-gatherer band because everybody can know where everybody else is by following their footprints. So the, um, the, uh, the, so the, and so they, they track, they, they. They play with bows and arrows. They become good in this way and that that way. And and they're basically preparing themselves to be hunters. Nobody's telling them to do this. They just do it. Um, And they play in many other ways, too. Um, If it's a culture where the women fish, uh, the girls are very likely to play at fishing. Uh, In all of these cultures, both men and women build huts when they move from one area to another there's they're kind of they're nomadic following the available game and vegetation edible vegetation and at each place that they stop and stay for a while they build huts both men and women do that and not surprisingly both boys and girls build play huts as part of their play so that's what i learned and um and it fits with the idea that children come into the world designed to play and play in all the kinds of ways that are important for people, uh, the practice, the skills that are important for people everywhere, but also to play at the particular skills that they can see are important for life in the culture that they're growing up in. So. this is really more than a theory of play, it's a theory of education, that children are biologically designed to practice those skills that they need to practice if they're going to become successful uh, citizens in the in the society that they're growing up in.
1: Yeah, wow, thank you, I love that. So that phrase, so you're saying that we're essentially, this is 99% of human history, um, is a, a history in which young people are are biologically and designed to to learn through play and, and the the wider context that you 're painting there it 's sort of like it couldn 't be further removed from modern living could it you 're describing a very egalitarian sort of sociocratic system where we have a very hierarchical one now you 're talking about um about um people sharing and we live in an age of of galling inequality of young people being valued and not being made to do stuff and you could argue that like the you know if there's one thing that 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 uh that that sort of over over archingly describes your experience of childhood it's basically like either doing what you're told or rebelling from doing what you're told this very that's very much how we frame childhood now and so we evolved in very different circumstances and you can therefore see why we're sort of experiencing so many of the problems that we experience because we're now living in in a very sort of artificial environment, both societally and in terms of of how young people are growing and developing.
0: Yes, uh, uh, and yet yet, um, these same instincts can work in our culture if we allow them to. Um, so the people who argue that um well, we need to have coercive schools because the um these instincts that developed during hunter gather time well they're good for learning hunter gather stuff. <laughs> but they're not good for learning some of the things that we need to learn today. Of course, there are some things that human beings have to everywhere learn. We have to learn our native language, we have to learn how to get along with other people, we have to learn how to control our emotions, we have to learn how to take initiative, we have to learn courage because we're all going to face emergency situations. These are things that children everywhere practice in play, including in our culture. When they have opportunity to play, unfortunately, they don't have enough opportunity to play. So, but then, the things that the some of the cultural things that have to be learned, some of them are the same. You know, I mean, human cultures have a similarity everywhere, no, no matter how much uh, they differ in the ways that you just described. Uh, but, um, but. Um, but to contrast, contrasting the learning environment of a hunter-gatherer uh, child and the learning necessities of a hunter-gatherer child compared to a modern child. First of all, hunter-gatherers can see everything that adults do. There, there, there's nothing hidden from them. <laughs> hmm. So they can, they can see how huts are built. They can see how they can, they experience and take part in the music and art of the culture. They uh can see how uh, how cooking occurs they hear story they may not go on the big hunting trips until they're teenagers and they're allowed to go on because they because it's safe enough for them to and they're not going to disturb the uh hunting but uh they hear the stories and as soon as they're as soon as they can they want to go the boys want to go on the hunting trips uh, so they see everything that's happening. They all take part in um, in uh, in finding vegetation, finding which roots and tubers are edible. They just um, they see this directly. And they experience the processing of food, and oftentimes want to do this they so they so they can see everything that goes on they in what they don 't see, they hear about, and discussions around the campfire, not because anybody's trying to educate the kids, but just because people talk about their day and their experiences, and they tell stories, and so on. then the kids are there listening intensely, so all that in our culture we don't have that kind of exposure first of all there are many many different things that people do in our culture our culture is much more complex there are many different ways of making a living we don't just hunt and gather we very few of us do that most of us are doing something who knows why but we're doing something that isn't really that basically related to our survival but, mm. for, well, but there's all kinds of d- different ways of making a living in our culture than hunter gatherer. secondly when we think of schools, probably the first thing we think of the schools are for is for learning how to read, write, and do arithmetic, what is sometimes called the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? Mm. Well, hunter-gatherers don't have any of those. They don't have written language. Yeah. Uh, and uh, for the most part, they don't have numbers. They don't need to use numbers much. <laughs> they don't read to use them. The, some of the languages have maybe a word for one, two, and then after that, it's many or, you know, some way of showing by fingers or something. They don't even, they have so rarely use numbers that they don't really even have number words. So, um, so some people have argued from an evolutionary perspective that reading and uh, arithmetic, mathematics, has to be taught in a deliberate way because our brain just isn't naturally designed to pick it up, we never had to as hunter-gatherers. So I would probably tend to believe that argument were it not for the fact that I have seen that, um, in fact, given appropriate conditions, these these are, in fact, picked up naturally. And in fact, I would say that most real learning of reading and real learning of mathematics in our culture to the degree that the latter occurs is uh, picked up naturally. That, um, and and I, I, can, I can elaborate on that if you'd like. And the other thing I would say where I think that the people who've argued that reading and math are not natural miss the fact that there's a lot of things that hunter-gatherers do that are not that different from reading and math.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. I definitely do want to 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 come back to that, but I'll, I'll do that in a little while, if I may. Um, because, um, so I've, I've had a thought about how we might structure this conversation. Uh, firstly, I mean, I think it, you you mentioned coercive schooling there. I think it's, um, it, it's fair to say that you're not a fan of, of, of coercive schooling, or indeed schooling... At all? Are you, would you describe yourself as a deschooler? Do you do you think that we should not have schools?
0: Well, we should not have schools as we define them, as they're normally thought of. So um, we have uh, what most people think of as school is a is an institution that establishes a curriculum for children and either through coercion or coaxing, but it always ends up being coercion, uh, gets the children through that curriculum. (laughs) Uh, Where children pass, if they get through that curriculum and can prove that they have in some way incorporated some of it and can feed it back, Um, and uh, that that's what most people think of as school. Now that I'm completely against. I think it's harmful. I think it results in shallow learning. I think it is unnecessary, and it's basically a violation of human rights. You're forcing a child to do something against his or her will, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's moral, and I don't think it is necessary. Um, children. So, on the other hand, for the reasons that I just gave, um, we, our culture is different from a hunter-gatherer culture. So I don't think we can just completely leave kids alone, send them out on the street and expect them to become educated in the way that I think we would all like our kids to become educated. What we have to do instead is set up the conditions in which children can make optimal use of their natural ways of learning, conditions where They have the tools of our culture that they can play with and learn from. Conditions where they see lots of examples of um, valued behaviors in our culture, lots of examples of adults who are um, successful and worth emulating. I don't think it's a good idea for a child to grow up just in a nuclear family. Um, Children need exposure to larger numbers of people, and children especially need exposure to other children because so much of what is learned comes in interaction with other children how to yeah. make friends with how to make friends how to get along with peers how to negotiate uh, and moreover because in hunter gather cultures children are always in age mixed groups we have an evolved educative drive in which children are learning younger children are learning all the time from older children they actually learn more from older children than they do from adults they're with children. They're with older children more. They're inter- they're with them all day long. Mm. And and older children are in some ways better models than adults because they're not that different. If like yeah. if I'm a 5-year-old and and you're 45, you're in a different world from me. I don't necessarily think I can do what you could do but those cool 7 and 8 year olds around me who are doing these amazing things they're not that different from me i maybe i can do those things and so yeah and so that's the that's an important part of the setting that is missing for too many children today
1: you make a you make a very strong case for for age mixed um grouping in in the book and I I was speaking with a friend this week who who home educates her four children we might hear from her later on because she sent in an amazing question that I'd like to put to you but she's I, I asked her like you know do you get much pushback from people do you get people who sort of you know like say what are you doing not sending your kid to school and she said that the the number one thing that people say is But what about socialisation? That children get socialised in schools, and for for the benefit of listeners, Peter's grinning from ear to ear because this is this is, and again, it's something that I hear a lot of, but that that there's an assumption there that children do get well socialized when they go to school and actually when you think that they don't get to mix with with children of of other ages it's a very artificial environment that we're putting them into in schools but it's a but it, it's a very very widely held belief that if you don't send your kid to school that they're not going to make those social connections that are so important for the development what would be your response to that well, that
0: probably comes from a kind of a stereotyped image of and a mistaken image of the typical uh, homeschooling family. I think there are some homeschooling families, uh, even today, uh, especially in the United States, who um, who homeschool in order to isolate their children. Uh, these would be um, and this was more true in the past than it is in the present., uh, these would be um, fundamental Christians who um, believe that there is too much evil out there in the world and they need to protect their child from that, who don't want their children to learn about, for example, evolution, which is my specialty, Mm -hmm. who don't want, who basically want to really control their children in a doctrinaire kind of way. I think that's very harmful, and I think that does lead to isolation. I think there are also some other families, kind of in some ways these could even be the other end of the ideological spectrum, who think their children are little geniuses and they're homeschooling their children uh, because they think they can teach their children better than the school can, which is probably right. And uh, in some sense, some of those children are isolated also, they're studying to get into Harvard, (laughs) you know, or Mm -hmm. whatever the school is. So I don't want to say that doesn't happen. But the vast majority of unschoolers today and homeschoolers today are, um, are very concerned with making sure that their child is connected with, the whole, with society and with other kids and, and, and is exposed to other adults and is part of the community. So in some sense, homeschooling becomes a misnomer. You have the impression, well, it's just all occurring at home. It's really, um, it may may be centered at home for legal reasons, but the child, if in an ideal homeschooling environment, is out in the real world uh, in a good share of the time interacting with other people. Now, in terms of the question about about socialization at school, first of all, as you said, at least today, uh, uh, schools are... All, essentially, all age segregated. There were a time when you had the one-room classroom, and there were kids of all ages, and that was a better social experience in many ways altogether. All, all but so, not but not only are the kids uh, segregated by age, but you know, there's very little opportunity for social interaction to occur in school. <laughs> you know, you it can maybe occur before school starts and after school ends, but increasingly kids are shooed off campus, and they're not even allowed to be on campus before school, at least in the United States. It used to occur during lunch hour, but lunch hour is no longer an hour. It's about 20 minutes now, typically, in the United States, and... I, I've heard from elementary schools where uh, there's a woman with a bullhorn telling the kids to be quiet. I mean, it's like a prison. And so, and recess, it used to be that there were quiet, that there was at least an hour, and in, in my case, uh, uh, two hours of recess counting lunch hour when I was in elementary school. Now for the public schools in Boston, it's 15 minutes a day and you barely have time to go out and come in. What kind of socialization is that? <laughs>
1: yeah yeah absolutely and so so on that i mean I'd really like to 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 get a little bit deeper into into why it is because most people have a positive vision of school they have you know this this idea of school as a place that you can that that's safe where you can send your kids while you while the parents go to work where they can, to greater or lesser extent, as we've just heard, a lesser extent, socialise with other young people and where they can be exposed to big, important ideas about how the world works, the best of the, all that's been thought and said and all of that stuff, where there are trained experts in particular subject disciplines who can induct them into knowledge disciplines and so on. And so most people have this very positive vision of, of what a school is and they think that they provide a great service to society and and mostly teachers are sort of quite well regarded um and so you, you you touched upon it earlier but could you if you if you could give me sort of like just like the main it like may three main reasons that spring to mind or i don't know why, why is it that you think school is is so damaging
0: yeah so so you've described an ideal vision and that's the propaganda that we all hear <laughs> and um And it's almost regarded as mean to say something against school. School Mm. has a halo around it. Um, You know, let me just give you an example of the effect of that halo. So there was a study done a few years ago in the United States by the American Psychological Association called Stress in America. They found in that study very clearly the most stressed out people in America were teenagers in school, more stressed out than their parents, more stressed out than anybody else. When they ask the teenagers, what is the source of your stress? 85% said school. School is what's driving me crazy, (laughs) right? And the rates of anxiety, rates of depression are huge Mm. now in the United States, and most of them are saying it's school. This same study, they did some of it in the during the school year and some of it during the summer when school was off. The rates of reported anxiety and depression, the basic question was uh, in the past two weeks, have you experienced serious bouts of anxiety, something like that. The rates of people saying yes to that were half as much in the summer as they were during the school year. We also know that the suicide rate among school-age children plummets in the summer. It goes down and it goes back up in the school year. School-age children are the only people for whom the suicide rate is lower in the summer than during the rest of the year. It also goes down during vacation periods. School is clearly, if you ask the kids, if you look at the real data, School is clearly the biggest cause of mental disorder in the United States, and probably in the UK also. Yet, what do you read in the popular press? Oh, it's all about computer games, or it's about uh, social media, or I've looked at the data there, and the data don't support that argument. They simply don't support the data are glaring about the harmful effects of school, but we don't dare say it. <laughs>
1: Well, people get very, very defensive. I've noticed about this particular issue, uh, and I know that you go into great detail again on this point in the book, and there's loads of, uh, of statistics in there, and and lots of the statistics were comparing, for example, rates um, of anxiety and depression and suicide and so on, comparing like the sort of the like, forties and fifties with the eighties and nineties, and so this is pre social media. Pre sort of video games becoming huge, pre like climate change anxiety and so on, all of which you could very well argue have potentially added to uh, to some stresses. Although I know that you know the, the there's there's lots of, um, of of debate around those things as well. Um, but and and you make you make a very strong case in the book. You say that you know we shouldn't confuse correlation with causation, but you make a strong case that that the reason for that is that is what you were talking about the decline of of opportunities for free play in childhood and you were talking about yeah like you know you having an a half an hour recess in the morning and one in the afternoon and an hour for lunch lots of unsupervised play climbing trees and playing wrestling on the field and so on and nowadays that would be broken up like my my job at lunchtime would be to break up wrestling matches on the field because I was like you know the, the big bad like, lunchtime supervisor or whatever, and so we've we've stopped young people from having those things. And is that what is that fundamentally what you see as the central driver of this huge increase in mental ill health and the lack of well being as this as the decline of of play? Yeah, I think
0: that you know there's a there's a kind of a no brainer here. So there's no question but what, partly because of the increased weight of schooling and the amount of time schooling takes partly because of the increased fears we have of letting children just go out and play, and related to that last point, partly because we're putting our children into adult-directed activities, competitive, I might say, adult-directed activities, Mm -hmm. even when they're not in school. So these are school-like activities. What we have basically done is we have taken away play and instead of play, we substituted competitive, adult-judged, adult-directed activities for children. Now, what's going to happen? Take away play, and what happens? Depression, of course. Pl- life without play is depression, <laughs> especially for children. It would be for you and me, too. <laughs> but you take, you know, there's one um, one uh, late- uh, researcher who used to say that the the opposite of play is not work it's depression <laughs> I don't say that because the grammar doesn't work for me but yeah, take away play and you're gonna get depression mm. there's no question I mean that's a no-brainer why should we don't have to prove that <laughs> that's obvious <laughs> right and instead of play you put them in adult judged activities, so they're constantly being micromanaged judged compared who's better, who's worse. In school, do you pass or fail? Do you make honors? Do you not make honors? Out of school, do you make the traveling team or don't you make the traveling team? Do you sit on the bench? If you mess up, is everybody going to be mad at you because you lost the chance for a trophy for the team? We have put children into constant anxiety promoting conditions instead of letting them play the way they're designed to play, where they're learning in their own ways, where they're happy, where they're relaxed, where they're not being judged, where they're not being micromanaged.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's You make a very, very compelling argument, um, and you're right, it does, it does really seem like a no-brainer. I would, I would, I would like to to um move into a section where I'd like to uh, sort of stress test your ideas a little if we may and and to sort of to tr- I'll try to offer cuz cuz you sort of, you, I think you're probably a little more radical than than me I tend to think that we can that that school is a reformable idea I know that you think that it's sort of like that it's a bit of a a bad idea and that we should move we should move beyond it so I'd look. I firstly like to offer a defense of schools if I may and then will and there's a few arguments there and then some common arguments against self-directed education which is really interestingly coming to the fore for a long time that's just not even been up for discussion and now it's it's at the center of the, of the discussion but lots of people in the centre are really disregarding it and saying that this is a mad idea, we shouldn't go down this route. So I'd like to look at some arguments against self-directed education and hear your thoughts on some of those. Um, And then if we get time at the end, I've had quite a few questions from listeners, which I'd love to put to you as well. So uh, does that sound okay? Sure. Great. Uh, So firstly, in defence of schools, I mean again just you know we need to be careful not to confuse correlation with causation but a number of things in society you could argue have improved since compulsory schooling became a thing so for example and you mentioned reading earlier literacy rates you know in in I looked up some statistics in 1820 something like 12% of the world could read and write and in twenty fifteen, you know, after one hundred and whatever twenty thirty years of, of compulsory education, the global literacy rate was around eighty six percent. The a number of other things have, have increased hugely in that time period. Like life expectancy um, was was something like forty two in this country in nineteen hundred. It's now eighty two um technological innovation and so on and so on and again you know correlation and causation and all that but i think that you could surely make the case that compulsory education has contributed to making the world a better place what would be your argument against that
0: all right so um First of all, you know, in the 1820s, there wasn't as much need to read. We're a culture where in the 1820s, if you grew up in a family where people read, you would learn how to read, whether you went to school or not. It's also the case that the rate of literacy was higher than is generally acknowledged uh, prior to schools. We also know, for example, regarding reading, everybody thinks reading is so hard to learn because schools make it hard. (laughs) Reading is actually pretty easy to learn. There's uh, some evidence that enslaved people in the United States who were not, it was illegal to teach them to read, but many of them could read. Many of them figured out how to read one way or another. They snuck it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So reading is not that hard. I have yet to find a graduate of a Sudbury model school where there's no, there's no forced teaching of reading. I have yet to find somebody who hasn't learned how to read in such a school, including kids who've been diagnosed as dyslexic when they were in the public school. They leave school and they learn how to read because they can learn it in their own way at their own time. So the primary thing to learn how to read is you need to be immersed in a literary environment. Now, there was some rationale for schools to teach reading at a time when most people couldn't read because you're not going to learn how to read if there's no reading going on in your home, if there's no reading going on in your neighborhood, if there's no particular reason in your immediate environment to know how to read. And if the, if the society, for one reason or another, decides it's important that people know how to read, then it's valuable to have schools to bring kids in to teach them how to read. This is this would take a few weeks. <laughs> it truly would. You know, Castro, I don't like to say good things about Fidel Castro, <laughs> but here's a good thing about him. He wiped out illiteracy in Cuba within a few years. And how did he do it? He sent... Um, young people who knew how to read to go and live with the peasants and teach them reading while they were also working with the peasants. And in, one, in, in one, less than one generation, he wiped out illiteracy. It doesn't take a lot to learn how to read. <laughs> Once you've got people who know how to read, all you have to do is match them up with people who don't know how to read and they'll learn how to read. So that's, and, and so, so, so this whole argument about reading, goodness gracious that we we need 12 years of basically full-time work. So people, so we'll have a literate society. That's ridiculous. So in terms of life expectancy, there's all kinds of reasons why life expectancy has increased. Um, And, uh, and, 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 and there's no reason to think that, that the institution of schooling is a big part of it. I do think that there's a larger sense in which education is a part of it
1: can I can I just come back on that so so like an obvious argument when you say that there's no case like an obvious argument would be that it's medicine that's that's improved life expectancy and that to become a medic you have to go through school and to succeed in school and to study the sciences and to get a medical degree and so on that I guess that would be the the case there. That that's, the, that that's a primary driver of, of the increase in yeah, well, life expectancy. We, well,
0: we've, we've set things up so that in order to do medicine you have to go through our typical school system. That wasn't always true and it hasn't been true for a lot of the greatest innovators. I mean if you think of the people who have really contributed most in all kinds of ways to, the, to what we call cultural progress, most of them hated school. They would have. They did what they did despite school, and many of them uh, basically skipped school. I mean, Thomas Edison skipped school. Benjamin Franklin. I'm talking about these American great inventors <laughs> and statesmen and so on. Benjamin Franklin had two years of school. <laughs> you know, left when he was eight or something for an apprenticeship, and then skipped out on that. You know, the uh, Einstein. Uh, Einstein went through school, but he hated it. He said he he almost destroyed his interest in in uh, in physics and math. So I don't think that there's a good argument to be made. Let me let me also describe a little a book that was written uh, maybe about ten or fifteen years ago. It's not a brand new book called Wounded by School. Um, Kirsten Olson, who at the time was a graduate student um, in education at um, Harvard University wanted to do this study initially because she was a sort of fan of school, wanted to do a study showing how school had inspired uh, people who had been made um, re- good in- achievements in the culture. And so she identified a bunch of successful adults and interviewed them about their school experiences and what was your best school experience and how did it lead you to do the work you wanna do And what inspired you, and she found nobody could think of anything. <laughs> Everybody could think of ways that school had harmed them and was irrelevant to them <laughs> and She ended up changing her thesis to uh, to uh, and ultimately a book called Wounded by School because what she found was they were they they talked about how school got in their way, how school slowed them down, and how school told them that they were no good at the very thing that they wanted to do, and subsequently went on to be very good at <laughs> so i uh, you know I think that this kind of argument that we hear is um, is an idealized argument, and there there may be a few people if you search for whom who will say and for whom it's true. Uh, You know, school really inspired me. I do think, though, there are some people who will say school was a wonderful escape for me from home. My home was terrible. And so school was a place where I could go Mm -hmm. and be away from home. And I think that is a valid purpose for school. And that's why I favor schools, but not coercive schools. Yeah. That's why I favor schools like the Sudbury Valley School, which are kind and helpful nurturing environments where, you, where there's all kinds of educational opportunity and there's no abuse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And which are very, very like, which are places where I've, I've, I've not been to Sudbury Valley, but I hear that there are books everywhere that like, that the, the children are immersed into a literary environment there. And and that brings us on to the second one nicely. So you're saying like non-coercive, that, that it should be consent based. And this brings us on to the next one, which you could argue that this would fall into the self-education and self-directed education category. And it's essentially the idea that children don't know what they don't know, Uh, and that therefore it's obviously a good idea to have expert adults who can induct them into the big ideas that shape the world. And just as an example of this, I was sent an article in preparation for this conversation by somebody on Twitter. There was an article that was published a while ago by somebody who had visited Sudbury Valley and they said, for example, that they spoke to a 16-year-old who didn't know who Martin Luther King Jr. was. Although, to be fair, the article does go on to say that a, a subsequent survey found that 20% of college students also don't know <laughs> who MLK was. Um, and this links to ideas around the knowledge-rich curriculum, which has become very sort of um, fiercely fought over in this in this country in, in the last few years, and lots of people criticising... You know the famous um, Ken Robinson's TED Talk about how schools kill creativity? And the argument against that goes that in order to think creatively about something the most important determinant of your ability to think creatively in a domain is how much knowledge you have within that domain. And that therefore schools don't kill creativity by by helping young people develop a rich schema of knowledge about whatever it is, geography and science and art and music and so on, that they enable creativity and and just lastly because this sort of ties in with this and it's the thing that you that you referred to earlier um the work of david geary that's become quite sort of widely un, widely um talked about in recent years partly because it was co-opted into cognitive load theory by john sweller and that's this idea that that there are different sort of distinct types of knowledge there's there's bi- biologically primary knowledge that sort of that's that's that the stuff that we evolved to do as hunter gatherers, for example, like facial recognition, and basic sort of problem solving, so quite um, things and learning how to how to speak and listen and so on, um, and that those things are innate and hardwired and easy to do and the other stuff that you mentioned earlier the the 3 hours reading writing and arithmetic is doesn't come naturally to us and therefore we need coercion uh, and top down pressure and accountability and so on in order to 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 enable children to swallow this this um unpalatable but necessary medicine so that that's the second one essentially the, the argument that children don't know what they don't know and that therefore they need to be inducted by by adults who know what they're doing
0: all right, so you know, I can answer this theoretically or I can answer it empirically, but l- let me start a little bit theoretically. So, what, um, why do we care if uh, somebody doesn't know who Martin Luther King is? Now, you and I might think, oh, that's terrible because we really admire Martin Luther King a lot of other admirable people that you and I probably don't know who they are. <laughs> we know Martin Luther King because everybody in our social class talks about Martin Luther King and so on and so forth. And um, maybe they don't talk about somebody else. The, the whole idea, one of the ideas of our typical school system is everybody's supposed to know the same stuff. <laughs> you know, there's a billion, there's a million things to know out there in the world. There's a, there's a infinite, there are infinite bits of information, right, that you could, you can, you can never commit it all to memory. (laughs) You can commit some tiny portion of it to memory, and so why should we all commit the same portion? The school system seems to think we should all commit the same portion to memory. So the, um, so I, I, I would bet on the other hand that if you actually took a survey of students at a Sudbury school and a survey of students at another kind of school and you didn't limit your questions just to the things that happened to be on the curriculum of that other school, right? Hmm. You, li- you chose things independently that seem important, Right. I think you would find pretty equivalent responses between the two. I don't think you would find the Sudbury students would be better at it. Nor do I think there's any value in being better at it. You know, if you don't know who Martin Luther King is, two thumb twitches on your on your iPhone, you, you know. <laughs> we live in an age when there's no need to commit stuff to memory. There's simply no need for it. What we, what we need is people who can think. We need people who are creative. We need people who have social values, who have moral values. We need people who can take initiative, and most of all, you know, we need people who are creative. The non-creative jobs are taken over by computers and robots, and uh, we need people who can think out of the box, and school is not training people to do that
1: okay, thank you so to so come back on that before we go on to the biologically primary and secondary thing um so so the, we're also talking about the e d Hirsch argument here for like cultural literacy that 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 schools should um that should teach young people what they... It's almost like he talks about like the background knowledge that you need to know in order to understand a newspaper article. So, for example, if there was a reference to Martin Luther King in an article that you read, but it didn't explain who he was, that if you didn't have that background knowledge, then you wouldn't be able to think critically about, for example, the Black Lives Matter movements in the the moment that we're in now because we don't know what happened in the civil rights movement. And so you can't really you know like the 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 pushback against what you just said that you don't need to know facts because you can look them up is that is that you um well well the the, common, the one argument against that is that we have a limited bandwidth right you have a limited ability to attend to things in your working memory but and you can you can cheat that limit by having lots of information stored in your long term memory and so by knowing all this stuff about Martin Luther King and the Egyptians and whoever, whatever else, right, hunter-gatherer tribes and the, the, all of the stuff that we talk about in schools, that that enables people to to, to think, that that's the, that's the stuff that, that thinking is made of and that you can't just sort of learn to think in a generic way, you know, like that you can't just be a, a creative... Th- there was a famous paper that was called something like um, Could Steven Spielberg Manage the Yankees? And, and it argued, no, he couldn't. He's a brilliant guy and very creative problem solver, but he doesn't know, he doesn't have the domain knowledge about baseball that would enable him to do that. And likewise, the manager of the Yankees probably shouldn't try to, to direct a, a Hollywood film because there's a, a set of domain knowledge that they wouldn't know there. So I think that that would be the, the argument against that.
0: Well, one thing that uh, my research suggests is that kids in self-directed education develop excellent domain knowledge they discover in their play what they like to do and their their interests and they become really good at it. They typically read about it, they develop a lot of knowledge about it. Many of them go on to careers. One of my most interesting findings, both from studies of graduates of the Sudbury Valley School and from studies of grown unschoolers, is that about 50% of them, uh, of those at least in my studies, are in careers that are direct extensions of passions that they developed in play. Uh, I could give many examples if you're interested, but um, oftentimes these are careers that you would never have even thought of if you went to school. So the the what my 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 experience with students, I of course have had lots of experience with kids who've gone to school. I mean, as a college professor. Uh, I saw the, you know, of course, 99% of the students who, that I taught had been to a typical school, maybe 99.9% of them had. And, um, you know, when wh- wh- one of the things I found is they didn't know what they're interested in. And most of them, you know, aside from partying and the football team, <laughs> really didn't have much interests. And for, so here they are. You know, here are people who have, who have presumably been exposed to great ideas in biology and, and history and literature. And I don't, I didn't see any spark in them as a result of that. I think what happens is that the people who design this think they're going to really create a spark by forcing children to do this. But what they do is they drive out any possibility of a spark. I remember sometimes, so I was teaching in the psychology department, and I would sometimes ask a student, so why did you choose psychology as a major? And here's a, actually, it's just one student who said this, but I think that it typifies what the reality is for many students. She said, well, well I studied in, in high school, I studied math, and I learned I hate math. I studied biology and I learned I hate biology. I studied history and I learned I hate history. I studied English literature and I learned I hate that. We never took a psychology course, so maybe I'll like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that's what we do. You know, you can't create a love of something by forcing people
1: to do it. I concur and and that's something that that, that comes very apparent very early on in, in childhood doesn't it when you try to do something on behalf of your child and they go no me do it like there's something so intrinsically hardwired about that need for autonomy and that persists way into the workplace there's been loads of research on on the importance of autonomy in the workplace and to come back to on the, the thing that you said about how you know the Sudbury valley model is like this is not a domain knowledge free zone and in that article that i mentioned earlier where the 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 the, the author was talking about the boy who didn't know who mlk was he also said you know there was another there was an essay by an alumnus from Sudbury Valley, who uh, discusses his years at the school, spent reading Malcolm X, Dick Gregory, and Herman and Probably had a far, far richer and deeper, you know, immersion in that in that world because of you know the the ability, the freedom to do so. Um, and so, I think that you can make a case there. Let's come back to the let's come back to the uh, biologically primary and secondary argument. Um, do you do you buy this David Geary um, theory that that some things sort of do, are unnatural and therefore need to be Essentially coerced or incentivized.
0: I don't. I don't buy the theory. Um, at least, certainly not in the way that David Geary presents it. So the foundation for the theory comes from a kind of a belief that became popular, maybe thirty years ago, in evolution among evolutionary psychologists. That the brain is sort of modular; that we have uh, one part of the brain that's for this, and another part of the brain for that, mm. and so on and so forth, and that these modules developed over evolutionary time. So, so we have, uh, so, so we would not have developed a module for reading because reading wasn't in, wasn't part of a, of human experience when the brain was growing we would not have developed a module for um, mathematics because that wasn't part of the human experience. And, and Geary would add, we wouldn't have developed a model for scientific thinking because his belief is that was not part of the human experience, but he's wrong about that. <laughs> so, the, uh, but, so even if we limit it to reading and math, I think that the truth of the matter is there's nothing about reading and nothing about math that, that that is that different from what hunter-gatherers and everybody else in the world does. So reading. Reading is simply the addition of, a in English, a 26-letter code to the vocal language. The hard thing is learning vocal language. Once you've learned vocal language, it's easy to learn to read. It's simply, we also know that people can learn to speak in many different ways. There's sign language for people who don't have, you know, who, uh, who are mute or deaf. There's uh, all kinds of people. People learn to communicate in one way or another. The written language is just another way to communicate. And it's not no more hard to learn as long as you're exposed to it. You just have to be exposed to it. As long as you're in a world where people are reading, where people are reading to you, you're seeing words, you're playing games that involve reading, Everybody at a Sudbury school learns to read. They don't all learn to read by the age of five or six or seven or even eight. Some of them don't learn to read until considerably later because they're not interested in it or they're not engaged in those things. But everybody eventually learns to read, again, as I said before, including kids who had been diagnosed as dyslexic when they were in public school. Hmm. Uh, So, reading is not a problem, it's learned naturally, it's learned in basically the same organic way that learning to talk is is learned. Um, And it usually
1: comes a lot later, doesn't it, when you leave kids to to do it in their own time, often it's sort of eight, ten, even into their teens.
0: That's right, there's a huge difference. I mean, there are always some kids in this, there are always some kids who can read by the time they're four years old. My son could read well by the time he was four years old and nobody ever taught him. Which again, is evidence, that learning to read isn't that difficult. If a three-year-old can learn how to read, it's not that difficult. There's actually studies done of three-year-olds learning how to read and the basic finding, the two most interesting findings regarding that, is number one they're not particularly geniuses in any other respect. They just got interested in learning. It's not that they have that they have a different kind of brain. There's no evidence that they do. They don't excel necessarily in other things. Mm. Uh, and the and the second um, thing that observed is those kids who learned how to read. It's not because anybody was deliberately training them. It's because, for one reason or another, they got focused on reading. They got interested in reading. <laughs> And reading became a thing to them, and any kid of any age beyond the age of about two who's really focused can learn how to read pretty easily. (laughs) It's not that difficult. I I can describe how my son learned how to read. He he probably got interested in reading because I was a graduate student at that time. So all he saw was me reading. you know, He probably came into the world seeing, "Oh, this is what people do in this world is learn how to read." I better learn how to read. You know?
1: Yeah. And so, and so this 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 links into the next the next thing, and this is a huge topic of conversation, which is the the, the argument about schooling as a as a way to level the playing field in terms of equality of opportunity, right? Um and so, like the private education system aside, which is deeply problematic, but it's a, a conversation for another day, the argument goes that schools provide all young people, regardless of their socioeconomic background, with a, like a more or less equal opportunity to learn and to to sort of to compete on a level playing field with their with their more privileged peers. Um, and so, for example, you know, like kids from, from low socioeconomic backgrounds are able to go to the top universities because they're able to to demonstrate their, their academic prowess, for want of a better phrase. And the, the, the argument being that, yes, there is inequality currently, inequality of outcomes. Um, but the argument goes that if we got rid of schools or if or, for example, a conversation that I've been having recently, if we made exams optional, that that would make it even easier for privileged families to to game the system even more in the in the interests of their children at the expense of other children um and and just as, a, as a, another example of, of a way to think about this 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 um question somebody like you know like malala Yousafzai who uh who campaigns spends her time campaigning the malala fund campaigning so that girls around the world are able to go to school and in at the moment you know like the, the, since the Taliban took over the Afghanistan t- took over Afghanistan again recently girls are finding that their schools are boarded up um and most people would agree that this is a bad thing right that, that there should be equality of opportunity for girls to be able to compete on the same um educational playing field as boys um and so that's a, that's a very strong a strongly argued case I think for for why schools as 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 bad and unequal as they may be, and likewise with the, this, this 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 conversation is sort of in a way as much about mandatory examinations as it is about schooling itself. That yes, there's inequality of outcomes, but it's not as bad as it would be if that wasn't there.
0: Well, okay, yeah. There's a lot in what you've said, um, but let me start with the issue of whether schools are uh, leveling the playing field. It's hard to say what would happen if schools weren't there or there were no substitutes for schools or no... Clearly, if there was no way for children to become educated other than from their own family, um, that would probably exacerbate inequality. But let's look at what school and public schools... Um, I think legitimately many people perceive public schools as um, as their... Uh, you know free for everybody, uh, offering the same curriculum to everybody ever since we, in the United States, ever since we desegregated schools, uh, supposedly offering the same thing to everybody. Interestingly what has happened over time in the United States, as more and more programs get developed ostensibly to create more e- equality and education outcome between rich and poor, the gap between rich and poor has continued to increase in in education outcome. So as we spend more money and equalize the amount of money between the two, between rich schools and poor schools, the gap has increased. The gap is as big for rich and poor kids who are going to the very same school as it is for rich and poor kids who are going to different schools. The gap is uh, as we have... Uh, there's research that shows that reducing class size does not reduce that gap. (laughs) That increasing teacher pay does not reduce that gap. (laughs) That increasing the amount of homework, the amount of testing increases the gap, very clearly increases the gap. (laughs) Now, there's a reason why increasing the pressure would increase the gap. It's It's a reason that I think anybody can understand from their own experience. When you are already good at something, pressure helps. Gets the adrenaline up, right? You're showing off. (laughs) More pressure, better performance if you're already pretty good at it. If this is new to you, that pressure disorients you. Mm. It makes you unable to do it. It makes you say, this is not for me. It makes you drop out. (laughs) When you are, and there's many experiments, when you're learning something new, you want no pressure. You want to basically be playing with it. When you're when you're showing off how good I am at it, the more the audience is, the more judgment is, and so on and so forth, the better you perform. So uh, so psychologists should not be the slightest bit surprised because this has been known in psychology for decades. Should not be the slightest bit surprised. That the more we increase the pressure for high performance in school, the greater the gap is going to be between rich and poor. The rich who already kind of know it because they use this vocabulary in their home, they're playing games and involve numbers, they're doing these kinds of things. They improve even more than they had been before, but those who are so pressured and anxiety-ridden because they don't know this stuff or or are cynical about it because it seems out of their world, they're gonna do worse. This is yet another example of how our school system simply fails to take into account basic knowledge about human learning. We simply fail to take that into account. And that's because the school system is not designed by people who know anything about children or learning. It's designed by people who are looking at numbers and they come up with some idea that they think they're gonna increase test scores by doing this or that. And yeah. all they're looking at is numbers, and then they see oh the numbers are increasing between rich and poor, and they wanna find some way to blame the poor people. You know, if, if we really and truly wanted to reduce the gap between rich and poor, in the United States, we are spending $15,000 a year per student for our coercive education system. Can you imagine if you took that $15,000 per kid and just gave it to the parents? (laughs) That would reduce poverty (laughs) and that would reduce the education gap. But we think it's wrong to give people money. (laughs) We think it's wrong to reduce poverty. We think it's okay to send them to school and make them do all this schoolwork so they themselves can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but it's not working
1: it's an interesting point and and schools are often painted as like yeah like this that it's an engine of social mobility and that it's a way to close the disadvantage gap and clearly the answer to poverty is to give poor people money <laughs> and they're not poor Absolutely. and they're not poor that, anymore that would, that would reduce the
0: education gap it really yeah. would <laughs> and in this country
1: in the in the 90s we had a new labor administration um and the, the they um they they brought in all these targets and they had national literacy and numeracy hours and they essentially did all all of this stuff to make the education system work more efficiently thinking that that would close the disadvantage gap and they did that and they ran it for however long 10 13 years and they found that it produced more inequality because it because because schools are machines that produce social and economic that reproduce rather social and economic inequality and if you make that machine work harder more inequality will come out the other end
0: Let me me give you an example that illustrates the point I've been making. So we have had now ever since the the Lyndon Johnson administration, um, we have had a program called Head Start in the United States, which is a program uh, for uh, preschool kids uh, from poor families. In the early years of Head Start, when it was part of Lyndon Johnson's anti-poverty program, it was understood to be an anti-poverty program. The basic thing about Head Start at that time was that it provided free daycare for for parents uh, in poor families, and it also provided social services for those parents. So the free daycare allowed the moms, in many cases, to work outside the home and make money and reduce poverty. And also, many of those parents were actually hired into the days into the Head Start program to be classroom uh, teachers or assistant teachers. And so they were paid money for doing that. In those early days of the Head Start program, there's research showing that this was long-term successful. Those kids who were in that program were more likely to go on to complete college, more likely to have good careers later on in their life, more likely to have stable marriages, less likely to go to prison, all kinds of great effects of Head Start. Then beginning in the 1980s and uh, and 90s, after we began to have No Child Left Behind and all the academic pressure, Head Start changed to become an academic program. They began to see it as a training so that these kids would do better in school. A lot of the the anti-poverty aspects of it were dropped out now the very same studies that in the past have been replicated that in the past showed success are showing either no effect or even harm of the early of the head start program that those kids who are going to this mm. are doing by some studies more poorly than the control kids who aren't going so we're so misguided in believing that the that the route to doing away with inequality is by more forced academia. <laughs> it It is having an opposite effect.
1: Yeah, okay, so, so yeah, thank you. I, I, I linked to this, there's, there's a separate question around privilege. And so when I was talking to a previous podcast guest about your book, um and um about about the, the the story of your son and so on and and he said like the, he the, he said that the thing that pricked up his ears was that, that that you that you are an academic and you said earlier that you know your son was immersed in this in this world and 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 the self-managed learning college where i used to work like Sudbury Valley are fee paying they they run they run cheaper than than state schools but still they're independently fee paying and the, there are some hardship funds but but primarily unfortunately it 's young people from middle class backgrounds who tend to go to those schools that require fees by nature right because they cost money um, and therefore that they have that they have cultural capital that they have socio economic capital uh, at home they might have more be more likely these are sweeping generalizations they might be more likely to have books in their homes to go on, to go on holidays to visit museums to do other things and so on um, and the The argument is that if we were to implement the Sudbury Valley model at scale, that it would exacerbate inequality, um, because you you would be you know for example to use that example that you just said if if we t- if we took that fifteen thousand pounds away from the school system and just gave it to those families but school was no longer a thing, and therefore those those families would now have access to to a small amount of money each year but not to school that that would widen educational in- inequality of outcomes.
0: Right. So um, first of all, let me say that it it is true that Sudbury Valley itself charges uh, a flat tuition uh, and therefore um, somebody who's really poor um, wouldn't be able to afford to go there. There are other schools modeled after Sudbury Valley who uh, charge a sliding tuition, including no tuition at all for people who can't afford it. And so there is a growing number of examples of kids from poor families uh, uh-huh. who are going to such schools. Uh, we don't have enough data for a systematic scientific statistical study, but the case reports indicate, suggest to me, that uh, Sudbury Type schooling is even more valuable for kids from poor families than kids from wealthy families. First of all, let me say Sudbury schooling is less expensive than uh, public schooling. Yeah. So if the state wanted to support such schools they would save money. <laughs> it wouldn't cost more it would cost less. Yeah. And secondly those schools that have done it you know I've talked to the people I've met some of the kids from poor families they, they so here's what's happening. And you're taking a kid who's coming from a family where, you know, none of the parents or the uncles or aunts went to college, many of them didn't finish high school, they have no idea necessarily what it would take to become a lawyer or a doctor or a business executive or any of those kinds of things and that people from middle class families would know just from their own family and their neighborhood what it is to do that. They're probably not because there's that research showing that in poor homes, they don't often have the kinds of games from which you learn numbers automatically, like even like a game like Candyland, you're counting up squares and so on, you're learning what numbers are, they're not, there's not as much, there's not, there's maybe not much discussion about ideas because because people are struggling to make a living and and they're immersed in this other culture but now the kids are suddenly in this other culture as long as it's an integrated school now they're in this other culture where the staff are like uncles and aunts and and they know what it is to go to college they know what it is to do this and that you've suddenly got you've got suddenly got um, classmates schoolmates who are essentially now like cousins who come from all walks of life, you're immersed in games that involve numbers, you're hearing conversations about philosophical, political ideas, you're being challenged intellectually, You're, in other words, you've been moved from an educationally impoverished environment to an educationally rich environment. And that is, that you are now in an environment similar to the kids who've come from a middle class you're not there around the clock but you're there for 6 or 7 hours a day <laughs> 5 days a week during the school year
1: right so 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 this week there was a there was a tweet that that got quite a bit of traction over here by a fairly prominent uh, edu tweeter as it were like a guy who's a, a teacher Um, And it said, self-directed learning, uh, in inverted commas, is a privilege confined to very few students who have a specific set of knowledge, skills and expertise. In that sense, it's about as far away from an inclusive education as you can get. And what you just said seems to pretty squarely contradict that. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, of course it is. I mean, people who people who are from poverty are not biologically different <laughs> you know we all have the self the drive for self-directed education all we need is the opportunity for it and that requires that we be able to be immersed in an educationally rich environment meaning that a place where books are around, where people read, where people talk about ideas, where all of this occurs, if you're in that environment, you're gonna become well-educated. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, if you're in that environment. It's racist uh, to believe otherwise, (laughs) and it's untrue.
1: (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah, thank you. Okay, um, I'm I'm mindful of your time. I know you need to leave soon, so I'm I'm gonna take a slightly different direction for the last couple of questions. Um, One of them, which struck me as a really interesting conversation from um, somebody called Thomas Godfrey Fawcett, who asked, uh, he said, very excited for this episode, first of all, and said, uh, To me, self-directed education promotes an individualistic understanding of the purpose of education. Is there a way of aligning it more with a community-oriented approach to education, such that education serves both the needs of the individual and of society?
0: So it's easiest for me to address that question in terms of a school like Sudbury Valley. By the way, there are many other schools. There's a whole set of schools called Agile Learning Centers and so on. But schools for self-directed education are communities. And they are communities in a way that typical schools are not. They're real communities. So for example, at Sudbury Valley School, and all the schools modeled after it, and at the Agile Learning Centers, um, there is a school meeting that really runs the school in a very real sense. The school meeting decides on all the rules of behavior. So the school is not without rules. There are lots of rules: no littering, no bullying, no, you know, uh, no breaking equipment. You know, any community needs rules because um, just to, you you can't interfere with one another's activities, you, and so on. But the rules are made democratically. The rules are made at the school meeting, and whether you're four years old or fifteen years old or or you're a a seventy year old staff member, you have one vote at the school meeting. So the school meeting is the center of the democracy. There're also at Sudbury schools there's a judicial system, so if you violate a rule you got brought up to the judicial system which is created as a jury of your peers. It includes kids of all ages as well as typically one staff member in addition. So this is a basic, this is a community, it's a democratic community that Mm -hmm. you are a full part of. And you are growing up recognizing that being in a democratic community has responsibilities as well as privileges you need to be sure that everybody in this community is happy you need to be sure that you need to be sure that by meeting your rights you're not violating somebody else's rights that you're not inhibiting somebody else you're constantly involved in community decisions if you're attending that kind of a school and you're growing up with a feeling like it's not just all about me <laughs> it's all it's about it's about the fact that here here are these people that I live with, that I see every day, that I'm involved with, and um, and I need to look out for them as well, as, and this, I think this is part of human nature. This comes from our hunter-gatherer human nature. This is part of being a human being, as we care about other human beings, that especially other human beings that we're in regular contact with. One of the things that I have heard from at least some of the graduates uh, who I have talked with from such schools is that because of their experience with the democratic and community processes at the school, they are much more community-oriented as adults than they believe they would be otherwise or or than they believe typical adults are. They're likely to get involved in town government. They're likely to pay attention to what's happening both in their local community and in the larger um, political arena. They're more likely to take part in demonstrations and so on and so forth because they've grown up with this sense of community that comes from being a meaningful part of a community as they were growing up and educating themselves. I think the story is a little bit different for Unschoolers, but I think that, and and homeschoolers, but I think that enlightened homeschooling parents, and this is especially true for unschooling parents in my experience, recognize that it's really important to involve their children in the community in larger ways. I think that the ideal homeschooling or unschooling parents are people who themselves are very much involved in the community, and through that, the kids get involved in the community. Moreover, most kids who are Homeschooled or unschooled do join other groups, like they'll join Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or 4-H and so on. Partly as a way of meeting other kids, making friends, but partly as a way of joining something that is, in a sense, a community.
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you. That was a very persuasive answer. Um, I'm I'm absolutely on board, and and I and that was my experience as well from from uh, working at the self-managed learning college that the young people. Um, just took a responsibility for running the budget, for hiring people, for recruiting people. They they did all the cleaning at the end of the day, and they did a really good job. They were cleaning out the urinals and mopping the floors and stuff to save money on the cleaning budget, so that they could have more to spend on the kitchen and so on. So I can see that the the, the community engagement um, and giving people a, a working understanding of what what it means to be in a in a democratic community uh, is really strong. Um, have you got time for one more question?
0: I could take one more. Okay.
1: Uh, it's a, it's, it's, it comes with a little bit of a preamble, if I may. Um, it, this is from um, somebody that I've met through the podcast in this community called Kath Pratt, who runs a place, a self-directed learning community down in Cornwall, which is amazing, um, which is called Sewenny. She says, I'm becoming more and more convinced from my experiences with Sewenny, with rethinking education through this community and also bringing up four boys in in a self-educated fashion, that bathing children in opportunities to explore the world that are rich and varied is where imagination is sparked, coming back to what you were talking about earlier, and how the cognitive fluidity of creative thinking happens. She says, this for me is the door we are trying to open with education, more experiences, more ways to think, more thought experiments, more fuel for flinging previously unrelated ideas together. She says, it's really hard to hold that space for them to create that rich environment and to to feel the ebb and flow of theirs and your energy when the voice of your own education nags at you to do more maths. We have days which feel stagnant and days end-to-end steeped in learning. Taking an overview, they are incredibly happy children with daily cyclical inspiration sparks and struggles which peak and trough. They're each learning how to manage themselves emotionally, are engaged with world events and care compassionately and fiercely about injustice and so on. She says, I'm totally convinced that children thrive within this environment and their curiosity dictates what they want to learn and when. So she says, I'm there along with other experts to guide if invited by them to do so. They go to some classes with explicit instruction like science and dancing and so on, but they choose to be there which is great and that's an important distinction i think that op- opponents of self-directed education they think that it's just leaving the kids to their own devices and they don't realize that they could autonomously choose to be in a very strict learning environment so they but but the consent thing has to be there so she says they get stuff from the different from every corner of their day but all it's all ultimately with them at the wheel And here comes the question. So she says, Peter's MO is changing hearts and minds by asking the difficult questions about our systems of education. Often his blogs are tough to swallow, particularly if you have kids in school. And I know many parents are challenged by his writing. My question to him is, how do we build a bridge to a field of rich opportunities and trust in our kids from the love that we all as parents have for them when the industrial bricks of our own education are so firmly lodged in our eyes?
0: Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I think every, almost every parent who um, chooses, for one reason or another, uh, self-directed education route for their children goes through this. Um, it's uh, called. It's it's often called the deschooling process, where mm. you have to get this schoolish mind out of your own head. <laughs> you know, we did a we did a study. Uh, uh, Gina Riley, who's a professor at Hunter College, and I did a study um, a number of years ago of uh, unschooling families, where it was mostly moms who answered the survey. Something like 240 moms. Uh we were questioning them about why they chose unschooling for their family, what was difficult about unschooling, and so on and so forth. Um, what were the advantages, disadvantages? And in, interestingly, regarding our question about challenges, what's the main challenge about unschooling? I think we thought, well, you know, it would be having your kids home all day, it would be having to sacrifice the 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 extra income that that uh, the parent whose home would otherwise be making. We thought it might be something like that. But far and away, the two biggest challenges were, number one, uh, the feeling that everybody else in the world is criticizing me for doing this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whether it's true or not, you feel that they are, and often they are. Yeah. So, you know, the your own parents are saying, you're ruining my grandchild. Right. <laughs> you know? The neighbors are asking, well, why aren't you sending your child to school? Uh, you know, you hear this, uh, so that, but, but closely related to that, and for some, it was a bigger challenge. My own self-criticism of what I'm doing, my own doubts about what I'm doing. We all, almost everybody, almost all of us went to school for most of us, our parents went to school. For most of us, our grandparents went to school. So who are we to say we shouldn't be sending our children to school? <laughs> you know, we're creatures of norms. We're cre- we've are we got in our heads by, oh, my God, my child is six years old or seven years old and can't read. What am I doing here, you know? The, or, you know, um, so, so this is the unschooling process of getting that schooly, these schooly ideas out of your head. And how do you do it? I think you, I think the thing that helps most is to make good contact with other people, other adults who are doing the same thing. You have to talk with them, talk with, especially with adults who've been doing it longer than you have, who can tell you, yeah, you know, my kid couldn't read either until he was 13. and you know, now he's an engineer or now he's a, he's a doctor or whatever, you know, these things are reassuring um, people who you, you need to establish a new um, normative environment, uh, a new so- set of social norms where you're looking instead of uh, what are my kids keeping step with the school kids. You're looking instead uh, at, um, Is my child happy, you know, in what ways is my child surprising me? And, and, and you're also, you're also looking at the evidence from research, from other evidence that almost no matter what your kid is doing as a kid, uh, if they're happy, if they're, um, if they're not being screwed up in some way, even if it looks like they're not accomplishing anything, they're gonna be alright in life. Mm. There are kids, there are kids who basically, you know, there's a lot of differences among kids. Some are very energetic, they're always doing things, they're very clearly learning. Some are more passive and they may be there there are kids who quote, just do video games, right? And we've now had video games around long enough that there are kids who've just quote just do video games although who knows what's going on in their minds who now are business executives who are now doctors who are now you know some of the greatest people in history Tolstoy I'm told is an example was a complete wastrel as a yeah. child and a young man he was a good for nothing he never did anything <laughs> suddenly at some point he got inspired you know I mean so so Let's not be so concerned about the specific steps your child is taking. Let's mainly be concerned with having good relationship with your child, with being sure. I think it's important that, that your child be a moral person. I, I do think there's time to intervene if your child is doing immoral things. I think parents have a responsibility for that. But not worry if your child is not learning what other people are learning or not doing what you think your child should be doing sometimes i talk about you know there's a temptation to talk about those people who've done self-directed education who are who become the biggest achievers (laughs) and some of them were people who were really active as students and so sometimes you know i'll talk about the person who was into building things and constructive play as a child, and then went on to be an inventor. Now, so then somebody hears that story and they say, "Well, my child isn't building things. <laughs> my child isn't playing boat with boats like that example you gave of the girl who be all, who became a ship captain when she grew up. My child isn't doing these things." I'm almost tempted to stop giving examples <laughs> because people think, well, therefore, my child should be doing these things or something akin to it. There's a lot of individual differences, and um, and we need all types of people. And we need people who um, – there are some people who just – They'd rather take life easier. They're not such passionate people in in these kinds of ways. But they figure out a way to make a living. And then some of them, like Tolstoy, just at some point, something sparks them and they take off or like that. Young person, I was talking about who claims he just did video games, yeah. uh, and then went on. He also said, by the way, that all the skills I learned playing video games have helped me tremendously in my work.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, so, I, I spoke about that yeah. a fair bit with with Naomi Fisher when she came on. She was talking about, you yeah. know, that the children do get their needs met there to 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 solve problems to to um to to be free to be unsupervised and to do the playing that needs to be done in that circumstance just as a sorry i said the last one was a final question but if i may just squeeze one more in it's just about the moment that we're in now right as we're hopefully at least coming out of this this period of the pandemic and this given lots of people pause for thought and lots of half the people are saying i can't wait to get back to normal and the other half are saying, actually, normal really wasn't working for me. I don't want to go back to that. Maybe there's something else. And it feels like we're at this incredible moment of opportunity. I know that there's lots of people who have been taking their kids out of school. And I'm just interested to see the sort of the pattern as to where you see this thing panning out. Do you think that schools can be reformed, as I do, that that we can incre- that there's a sort of like a spectrum of, of autonomy, if you like, that we could we could take baby steps tomorrow to give children more choice and voice within schools and that could stretch all the way up to to making more sort of Sudbury Valley type funded state schools or do you see that uh, the the whole idea of a sort of a mandatory school system is an outdated idea that's going to that's going to go out of fashion as it were how do you see this thing playing out
0: let me address the question first by pointing out that I I am a co-founder of two very different nonprofit organizations. One of them is the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. This is the group that is aimed at helping people leave typical schools uh, and find ways of self-directed education, helping uh, people make that transition, helping to popularize it, and so forth. So when I'm wearing that hat, Uh, I am a person who believes that, and I actually do believe, that the ultimate revolution in education is not going to occur by virtue of change within the current public school system, but is going to occur by way of more and more people leaving it. And to me, it's encouraging to see, for example, that during this corona period, there has been a huge exodus from the schools <laughs> in the United States. That The rate of homeschooling before the pandemic was about 5% of American families were homeschooling. It's now up to 10% by latest. Um, this increase has been most prominent, interestingly, among black families. Uh, the rate of homeschooling among African-American families in the United States prior to the pandemic was about 3%. The latest data that I have uh, based on a Gallup poll is 16%. Wow. Absolutely huge increase. It's a big, big movement. I think more and more Black families are realizing that their kids are being particularly disadvantaged in the public school system Mm. and they are learning that there are alternative ways of of doing this. And I think the pandemic played a role in their gaining confidence that they can do it. And also, of course, the George Floyd murder uh, played a role in sort of bringing the um, African-American community around to the belief that we've got to do something to protect our children and uh, there's a big you know school to prison pipeline that's talked about in America for black kids mm-hmm. and so that's happening. So I think ultimately there's going to be a continued exodus from school it's going to become more and more possible for people regardless of of, of their income to do it as there's more and more people doing there's going to be more and more resources for it. On the other And I also recognize that for the time being, and for some time to come, most kids are going to be in public school. Public school is right now harming children uh, very severely. So another organization that I helped to found I wasn't the main founder of it, Lenore Skenazy, who wrote the book Free Range Kids, is the main founder of an organization called Let Grow. And we are actually working with public schools to bring real play into the schools and to bring real self-directed adventure into the schools. So I developed a program that the school's called Play Club, which is an hour at least once a week, and some schools are now doing it more than once a week, of real play, age-mixed play, where all the kids in the elementary school, so these are kids from age five on through about 11, are playing together and where the the teachers monitoring it are instructed not to intervene unless they absolutely have to. Um, I tell them, it's while you're watching play club, you're not a teacher, you're like a lifeguard on an ocean beach. You're there to save a life, not to tell people how to play or solve minor quarrels or get upset if somebody scrapes a knee or something. But if you think somebody's life is in danger, then intervene. And even then, maybe count to 10 before you do to see if they don't resolve it themselves. This has been a phenomenal success, as it turns out. Many, many, an increasing number of schools. Before COVID, quite a number of schools were doing it. Then, of course, it had to be abandoned during COVID. It's now being picked up again. There's a couple of academic studies being done on it that show it's having all kinds of positive effects. Kids like school better, the teachers like the kids better, (laughs) the kids are doing better. There's some evidence, um, although I must say it's not at this point scientifically publishable evidence that it's reducing the education gap because kids from poor families are feeling more comfortable in school. Uh, So this is something that Um, I'm actually involved in it's some I also think that although it's not the majority of schools there are increasing number of school superintendents who took from the lesson of COVID that kids need more time to truly socialize and play and make friends and um, and are trying to do something in that direction that's what's leading them to contact the Let Grow Foundation and bring in play club and there's another and another program that we've developed uh for for uh, increasing the kinds of adventures the kids have outside of school as part of a school assignment.
1: Yeah, fascinating. And it, and I agree it's really really encouraging. I was I was going to ask you a question earlier but I don't need to now which was about, you know, what would you what would you advise if you if you're a parent say and your kid isn't happy in school? But you can't afford to you know you work all day you can't homeschool easily you can't afford to send them to to some private facility um what would you advise to um to somebody like that i think you sort of partly answered it there where you were sort of saying like make can make connections there are there are other people out there who are, who are on a similar journey to you
0: yeah i think that now I'm sure that homeschooling is not as common in the UK. In the United States, we're now already at the point that almost no matter where you live, you can find other you can find people who are homeschooling,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you can you can either create or get involved with an ongoing organization of homeschoolers. As this is happening, and this was the the pandemic actually played, played a role in this. We had these um, pods that got formed, so. Groups of families would get together uh, uh, they could be pretty sure their kids and their families didn't have COVID and they could get the kids together even during the lockdown period. And this could be an opportunity for the kids to play. Some of them that were more academic oriented would offer classes or courses. So the realization that um, you can create these learning opportunities and play opportunities and and, uh, community opportunities for kids. And it doesn't necessarily cost much or anything. I mean, it can be held in a person's home, it can be volunteers, parents can, can alternate and who's going to be present. There are ways of solving this problem, and those ways become easier as there are more people doing it. Yeah. One other thing that's an encouraging thing I've uh, recently uh, published an article uh, based on a study that I and two library direct, library, public library directors did of libraries becoming places for homeschoolers and, uh, and, uh, and other kids who wanna do self-directed activities to meet. Some, many libraries in the United States now have maker spaces in them where people can come and create things, uh, learn from one another, all self-directed and at least some libraries this is what we're trying to promote actually have free play at the library inside and outside another way that kids can become part of a community so i think there's a growing understanding that we need to create places for children to play and and learn even those whether or not they're going to public school they need this (laughs) Uh, and um, and the idea that there are settings outside of school that can become places for that.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um is that publicly available that library's article?
0: Yes, it is. It's uh you can find it it's published in the American Journal of Play. Um uh if you you could just google American Journal of Play Peter Gray and you would find a number of articles I've published. Another place you could find it actually for people who are interested I write a blog for Psychology Today um, called Freedom to Learn. If you go to the author page of that blog, um, you can get there by just clicking on my picture on any of uh, the blog posts. Go to the author page, and in the left-hand column, there are uh, links to PDFs of many of my academic articles, including... That
1: Brilliant, thank you. I will um, put links to that in the show notes so that people can find them nice and easily. Well, thank you very much, Peter, for uh, sharing your time with me this morning. It's been delightful to 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 speak with you. Thank you for the really fascinating and important, I think, work that you do in this area, um, continuing to to ask the difficult questions um, because you know there's a lot at stake here, and it's clear that the that the mainstream system isn't working for everyone and I sort I I can see a much more diverse educational landscape you know I don't think that strict sort of no excuses schooling is going to go away anytime soon there are so many people who really seem to believe it believe in it both teachers and parents and that's going to that's going to be around but at the moment there's I think that you would argue that there's too much of that uh, certainly in this country and that we could have a much more diverse uh, educational ecosystem where people can and move towards, uh, towards a degree of autonomy of their choosing, um, that would be a nice future.
0: I, I tend to agree with that. And I think that the key there is that we have to have freedom of choice of education. And the problem is, I, I understand in the UK, the movement is away from freedom of choice right now. That's going to be harder to homeschool in the way that you want to do. And that's got to be resisted.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, that, that is a, a move that's happening currently. And it's being done for under un- spurious reasons um, in the name of like preventing children from being radicalized, for example. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of problems around that. Um, but, well, yes, thank you very much. Uh, I really enjoyed spending some time with you. Okay. Thank you. Great questions. Time is a measure of change we don't have much time time is a measure of change